I will be honest, this is the first time I've spoken about this outside of therapy or outside of my partner or very close friends. Anytime I think you've experienced trauma, there's so much shame for whatever crazy reason. There's so much shame around the trauma and around your feelings around it. And that's the last thing that we want people to know about us is that we have not moved through this. In fact, we've just packaged it so nicely. Welcome to Discover More. My name is Benoit Kim, and together, we will be exploring the depth of the human mind. According to the University of Oregon, about 5 million Americans are adoptees, which is more than 7% of the population, and more than 50,000 children are adopted through the foster care system every year. That sounds great and all, but what if I told you that the reality behind adoption is not as black and white as you may think? Pam Muzel is a documentary filmmaker, podcaster, and film and art college course instructor. She's also an adoptee from 50 years ago that lived through the little-known psychological implications of adoption trauma. Pam has bachelor's in French literature and modern culture from Brown University, and as a producer, she has post-production credits in over 20 feature films, including Terminator 2, Godfather 3, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Pam's podcast, Art Heals All Wounds, shares a powerful and transformative healing property of art and how art is a universal language that heals all. Let's get this started. Discover More, Discover More is, a is a show for independent thinkers by independent thinkers. Pam. Welcome to the show. Hi, Benoit. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I have gotten so much out of listening to it, so I'm really glad that you invited me on as a guest. How has art in your own personal life healed your wounds, Pam? That is such a great question, and it really is a core part of my own story. Um... I'm going to say to you, one thing I learned from your podcast is that we, or that you don't use the word overcome, which I really, really appreciate that you use moving through. And that's how I like to share my own story as well. I was adopted and I had wonderful parents, but if anyone knows anything about the adoption experience, there is a certain adoption profile which I think is probably inescapable. There's no perfect dream story of an adoption. And when you come into a family that's not your biological family, there can be a feeling of, what am I doing here? Yeah. And it's not, it, I wanna be really clear, I'm not saying adoption is bad or that it shouldn't happen. It obviously should happen. It's a solution to a certain problem. But what I am saying is that you spent nine months in the womb of someone and whatever impression that creates on your developing brain, you know, as a fetus before you're born, then that's who you're expecting to see and be with when you come out. And instead of being with that person, you are taken someplace else. In my case, this was adoption in the 1960s which was closed. And the law was that I would have had to have stayed with, uh, stayed with foster care for two months before being adopted. So that meant that bad surprise of not being with my birth mother in foster care, and then I was transferred again. My parents were very loving, very supportive people, but it was like I was another species mm. in the family. And... Um, I've read that you can either become the acting out adoptee or the compliant adoptee. And I was definitely the compliant adoptee as a child, you know, and my brother's also adopted. He was the acting out adoptee. You kind of become an expert at reading the room. How am I supposed to behave here? Because I don't really know. And not only do I not know, but I'm worried that I'll be rejected if I don't behave in the right way. And this is not something your birth, your adoptive parents are ever telling you. This is just part of 
this process of being adopted. And consequently, one of the things for me was that I didn't really have a very well-developed sense of self. One of my ways to survive, and I would say to even thrive, was through reading. And I became an avid reader from a very, very young age. And that was often what I did if, for example, the family was all gathered on a Thanksgiving day, I needed to have that book where I, Pam, could be in that book as opposed to in this group where I didn't feel like I really fit in or belonged. And that is what hooked me on this lifelong love affair with stories. Often when you're being born into a family, because we didn't necessarily choose our birthrights, our parents made the decisions for us on our behalf. And it's, it's a type of philosophy, right? Where parents inherently、mm. have more ownership because they made the decisions. The child is always innocent. At the same time, I think there is a beautiful idea saying that when you are born into a tribe, that's great. But I find more empowerment in choosing the tribe that you are belonged to. And I sort of sense that in your response. Yes, and that's easy to say now. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an adult. I can drive my car. I can get a job. I can make money. I can move to wherever I want to move to. I, I have spent a lot of time looking for my tribe. And that is also what has saved me is friendships throughout the years. When you really find those people that you know you're going to be friends with for the rest of your life, that is a very healing thing as well, which is not necessarily art, but I think it's essential for good, good emotional and spiritual and mental health. So, were you into just some of the nitty gritties? Were you into like autobiographies? Because I often talk about some of my best friends are the people who are dead. <laughs> AKA from reading, <laughs> since I've been a ferocious reader since I was young as well. And I think there is this idea of transcendence beyond time and space,、uh, tenant、mm. through reading by interacting with some of the greatest philosophers, some of the best thinkers of our generations or before, and learning from their lived experiences or their way of thinking. That is a way that I could immediately be in another、mm. world. And、um, imagine myself someplace besides where I was at that moment. I know very few things about adoption, and I know about the foster system since I worked as a policymaker. And I know the dark,、mm-hmm. dark reality that foster care has, and just the inhumane、mm-hmm. treatments, the competitions, and so on. But What I do know is that one of the best ways to mitigate the pain of the adoptees by their adopted parents is for them to be very transparent and open about the adoption process and or the fact that not hiding of the adoption reality for a lot of kids. Because when they found out、right. in their adolescence or teenage years, that is a rough process of, to repair. How did your adopted parents approach that process and just、um, anything for you? Because that's where my brain's going right now. Right, right. Well, you know, honestly, they were amazing. I never didn't know that I was adopted.、Mm. It was in our baby books. There was an adoption announcement <laughs> instead of a birth announcement. And there was a book that my mom bought. A children's book called The Adopted Family that you know, was part of our bedtime story repertoire. And I know the story of my mom and dad and brother being at home, and they got the phone call and bundling everybody up in the car and driving to the only big city at that time in Arkansas, Little Rock, the capital, to pick me up. And All the pictures that were immediately taken when I got home with my brother. It was never a secret. And in a certain way, I think that that adds to the mystery of why do I feel like such a fish out of water? 
It wasn't as if I didn't know. And it wasn't, I didn't feel ashamed of it. And in fact, I had a lot of friends who were also adopted, which was interesting. So it didn't even feel that weird. It's more something that's happening on an unconscious level about not feeling like you fit in, but also feeling like there was something wrong with you. Why was I given up? And these were not questions that I asked myself necessarily on a conscious level until much, much later. But you carry that sense with you that, hmm, there might be something seriously wrong with me that I was given up. And unfortunately, I think that is common. And even a level deeper, the reason why divorce adoptions and other difficult problems that the society faces is it shifts the burden to kids because kids are so innocent. They internalize us. Oh, my parents went through divorce because of me. And they internalize that false feeling because it's never the kids' fault. Because when you internalize such thing, that's not your fault as truth, it directly impacts your internal landscape. And I share that because I love you talked about, I, I do not use the word overcome in my podcasting or even real life or my clinical practices. I just don't. I also don't use should, good or bad. And I mm. don't use the word overcome because not to geek out too much, but it's the idea of epigenetics, right? Genetics is a given subsets of DNA uh, genomes that we're born with. That's the genetics people talk about, which is nature. And epigenetics is a study of change of DNA expressions under environmental feedback, which is a nurture. So epigenetically, Mm -hmm. the depressions, the trauma, the anxiety, the challenges, the abuses, whatever that we go through, they're not our fault often. And whether we like it or not, they do become a part of who we are, truly on an epigenetical level. So when I hear overcome, Mm -hmm. I ask, what are we overcoming from? They're part of us. And I feel called to share that. Right. Well, I really love that. I think it's a really generous and nurturing way to talk about work that we all have to do. Everybody has something to work with in this life, I believe. And... Maybe they haven't discovered what it is yet, but I think we all have something. So it also takes away the stigma from feeling like you are the only person who has something to work on. So I love that. Did you ever try to seek out your biological parents and just the intricate, because I feel like that's a pretty common story for a lot of adoptees, happy or unhappy that go through eventually. Right. Well, as a young child, you know, I, young childhood is, you can still be kind of blissed out no yeah. matter what's going on <laughs> right. in your life. And it's as you approach, to me, adolescence, where really all of a sudden there was anger. And I didn't really know why. Why was there anger? I could come up with reasons like, oh, my mom didn't let me go to this concert <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> whatever the reason was. But it was something deeper than that. And as a young adult in my 20s, making the transition out of college, I would say that was the darkest time of my life. And for me, that's when fantasies about my biological family really kick in. And I say fantasies because that is what you do. You imagine oh, if I were with my biological family, they would be just like me. They would understand me. We'd be skipping around in the (laughs) meadow holding hands. And, you know, really, really this idea that you could have had a better life somewhere else with other people. And I started doing little poking and prodding at that time. You know, that was in the 90s. So, um it was not necessarily easy to find information about a closed adoption. Really, the internet 
blew things open. And um, I did another couple of things, and I always chickened out. There are these things called adoption angels or something where they'll look for you. And there was no one who specialized in Arkansas, so I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I contacted the courthouse where my records would be, and you could sign up and say that you were open to your biological mother or father finding you, but you had to do like this whole counseling, and it was restricted to doing this counseling with a counselor in Arkansas. And number one, I was in California. And number two, I think it scared Mm me, honestly. Like, well, why do I have to do counseling? And oh no, it must be really bad. So it wasn't until 2020 during the pandemic, I thought I am going to do a DNA test for Ancestry.com and just see what pops up. I did that and was contacted almost immediately by cousins within the biological family, and they put me in touch with my biological mother. So I have been in touch with her. Whoa, so this just happens (laughs) within the last three years. Yes, yes. And we just met for the first time last year, a year ago. (laughs) Whoa, okay. So could you share some of your internal thoughts and your internal reality since that's how we started this conversations around when you were contacted by the cousins and last year when you finally made this contact, like the human and ET, it's a weird imagery. <laughs> it's a weird imagery coming to my head right now because of the coffee. But just this contact a half a century after the first initial adoption process that transpired. That is such a loaded question because I am still very much moving mm. through it. My biological mother has her own story. Mm. I know some of it. I know the facts of it. What that reality was like for her, I don't know. My fantasies, despite the fact that I am in my 50s, were still very, very much alive Mm. in that I thought I would step into this biological family and it would be this miraculous feeling of, wow, I belong here. That was not my experience. (laughs) And it's still an ongoing part of everyone's lives. So I don't want to speculate too much on where it could go. But it did force me to come to terms with the idea that, wow, you had some really heavy-duty fantasies that just got cracked. The other thing I'm going through, which you know this... um, My father died within the last few months, my adoptive father, and my adopted mother died in 2016. And there's so much to process about my relationships with them. I have so many, I was about to say regrets. Regrets is not the exact word because I feel like they don't serve you that much, but I do wish that the last few years of my mom's life, I could have gotten a heads up like, hey, your mom is not going to be here much longer. Because I would say between us, our relationship was the most challenging, mm. more than with my dad. And reading the reading that I've done about what happens both for the adoptee and the adoptive mother is that it's very, very complicated because... On a certain level, an unconscious level that no one really knew about, especially not in the mid-60s, there's a little bit of rejection going on by the adopted child as well. Because there is this sense of like, wait a minute, you're not my mom. And none of this is on any kind of level that's verbal or that was even acknowledged at that time. But... I always felt like she rejected me, and now that I'm able to have a little distance from it, I really feel that she would have had the same feeling, that we just were like oil and water, and we didn't know how to appreciate one another. And the thing is, she was an actually really lovely person. 
and gave me so much love, so much nurturing. And I wish I could have just set aside the whole mother-daughter thing and taken her as a friend, which she really needed at the end of her life. She was very mm. lonely. So I'm still working through that process. My dad passing away is so much fresher. Um, with both of them, I was there when they passed away, which we won't go down this tangent about what it's like to watch someone pass away from a sudden illness, but it's kind of traumatizing. Our bodies are just not built to peacefully die. That's not what all of our systems are for. Our systems are there to keep us alive. So it is watching someone fight a battle that they're not mm. going to win. So I still have a lot of processing to do. And what I really, really long for are people who are going to comfort me around that. And I feel like that that's not going to be my biological mom right now at this time because she's got her own story that she's dealing with. So we're moving through it. I'm moving through it as we speak. Thanks for sharing. And this is a professional hazard where sometimes my therapist brain kicks in and <laughs> I, I just get really curious because I will never understand that pain, but I could sense and speculate and resonate with the underlying process, uh, just with who I am and my profession as a psychotherapist. But as a podcaster, I do want to make the threads meet. And I was partially asking that question because I, I don't ask leading questions on the show, but I do intuitively pick up different points and to see if they can connect them. And I was partially asking Pam because your expertise and your identity as a filmmaker, documentary filmmaker, as a podcaster and instructor for art and film is your ability to cultivate rapport in an instantaneous mm and genuine and authentic way because you share with me offline one of your biggest regrets is when you try to rush that and it did impact your interview process with the guests or even the episode content because folks can pick it up the nuances because mm -hmm. people are sharper than they realize and i was seeing if the years of documentary experience as a filmmaker and now recently as a podcaster gave you some sort of a ability to soothe in the blow or the impact of reconnecting with your biological mother, which I'm sure it's a monumental moment. And that's where my brain went. That is such a great question. I feel like I'm so inside of it right now. It's really hard to know where it's gonna go. I do know that in every way, when I have a conversation with an artist on my show, there is something that gets soothed. And I pick people very deliberately because there's something in the work that they're doing, which is working through sometimes trauma, sometimes marginalization, things that I really can relate to in a certain way. and. I would say that that's true for me in terms of how I am doing a lot of my own healing, but I am not really sure that when I, when I talk about reconnecting with my birth mother, there is so much of this young person's fantasy about what a biological family is. And I am actually thinking about it in terms of storytelling. Mm -hmm. I really have had ideas about making a very personal doc about it and writing about it and journaling about it, which I think is the most underrated form of writing there is. My partner always tells me that I should have been a therapist, which I don't know that I agree with that. But I do love really hearing the mystery of someone's story and their pain and finding that place where I connect with it. And luckily for me, I happen to have in my circle of friends, people who are experiencing very similar pain. So I don't know how I did that, but I guess you do find what you need. 
But I think that I, that ability to build rapport was definitely challenged at that time because what came up for me were the little girl feelings of rejection. Right. So I just have to be honest about that. I'm not a storytelling, rapport-building superhero by any stretch of the imagination. That hits home for me because for a long time, I didn't understand the difference between being vulnerable and telling vulnerable stories. Mm. Because even with me and my fiance, we've been engaged for about four or five months now. And right before we moved out to LA from Philadelphia due to her internal medicine match process, we actually, she broke up with me after two and a half years of dating. And that was the first time I experienced heartbreak as an adult. I actually puked in the bathroom for like five minutes. And I didn't understand you could have this excruciating pain, like someone is literally gripping your heart externally and this crushing feeling until when she's like, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. And I share that because the only reason why she accepted me back, and of course now we're engaged, we're about to get legally married and the wedding is happening the next year, is because she said that Benoit, for the first time in two and a half years of a relationship, you've always been great at articulating your stories, sharing your vulnerable past to others on the podcast and with me. But I've never seen you actually being vulnerable in front of me. And I was like, holy shit. I thought they were one and the same. Because as storytellers, mm -hmm. the great ones, were so great at separating the reality from stories and internalizing and processing memories as stories because they are visceral and, and they resonate with us. So I often thought, oh, I'm good, I'm good at being vulnerable because I'm telling vulnerable stories that happened to me and I've done tremendous work, the shadow work, the inner child work, trauma work. But she was the one that taught me that, no, 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 huge, huge difference. That makes so much sense. And I think that if you have some sort of trauma in your background and you do gravitate to storytelling, that can be one of the biggest traps you can fall into in that you feel like, oh, I I can talk about this, I can do that, but then are you really being present with the people around you, the people closest to you? Are there moments when maybe you fall apart in front of them or when, you know, you admit that you're not feeling so great about yourself or that you are having anxiety about something? It's such a an important part of being a fully present partner to someone. But I think there is really, really a way that creative people can sometimes sidestep that. It's a really good reminder that you say that. Especially, I'm very big into like a stand-up comedy because I call back, mm -hmm. which is a big technique that podcasters use as well, right? And I do see a lot of the intersections and through line between stand-up comedy, improv comedy, and podcasting because unscripted podcasting is improving. Based on the container, mm -hmm. you read the room, you create abstract connections, which is artistic element of podcasting. But I think stand-up comics, in addition to actors and a lot of creatives and artists, as you alluded to, they're a masterful at, as you said, overriding their pain with stories and humor and they work until they don't. Yeah, no, and I relate to that very, very well because overall I've done so well in my life and it's very easy to ignore the pain that you are carrying around. I didn't hear anyone say to me until I was in therapy in my mid forties that adoptees even have this profile. And it was like this light coming on saying, oh, that explains so, so much. But I will be honest, this is the first time I've spoken about this outside of therapy or outside of my partner or very close friends. Anytime I think you've experienced trauma, there's so much shame for whatever crazy reason. There's so much shame around the trauma and around your feelings around it. 
And that's the last thing that we want people to know about us is that we have not moved through this. In fact, we've just packaged it so nicely in our creativity, in our, you know, our clever banter, whatever it is that has become our coping mechanism. At the same time, I think we live in a society where mental health is another marketplace and where trauma has been diluted, hijacked, even talking about most vulnerable, the scariest, the deepest skeleton in our closet openly because we we feel compelled to. But I think a lot of folks can't always tell the difference between curated trauma stories versus authentic, genuine stories that are compelling because they sound very similar, especially a lot of people are very masterful, very articulate, charismatic. They know how to package their things perfectly. So I have a lot of mixed feelings with mental health discussions in 2023, especially on podcast, where it's just another sales pitch. And it does worry me a lot. And that's something I think a lot about. I'm just going to say the first thing that popped into my mind, but um, I was seeing a therapist in my 30s who suggested to me that I go to adult children of alcoholics. Mm. And neither of my parents were alcoholics, but he said it's a really good place to go if you were in a family that felt dysfunctional because one thing that's really hard for you is to know what is functional. Wow. You know, these 12-step programs, they are all about sharing. And there was someone once who shared, I've shared so many times, and I get up and I can just rattle off all the terrible things I did and all the mistakes I made, all the feelings I had about it, and it's just has no impact anymore. It's not a real share anymore, and I'm stuck. And I always took that as a really good thing to remember, that you may think, you may get to a certain place where these certain stories, you can talk about them, just like, oh yes, this happened to me, this was traumatic, but you're right. When is that little thing going to come up that just takes you back to that very vulnerable, frightened, and shame-filled place? There's always going to be something. As I said earlier, you have work to do in this life. And if you haven't done it yet, there will be work. And I do feel a little bit like you asking me about finding my birth mother and all that stuff, that that is still the work that I have to do. But I haven't done it yet. And I'm not really sure where that path is going to lead, but it was a great moment for me to say, oh, this still really hurts. I'll bill you for the therapy session after, after, the, <laughs> <laughs> after this interview. But uh, yeah, like I said, I do really subscribe to the idea that pain teachers, and I think all effortful things are worthy and all worthy things are effortful. So that's at least how mm. I navigate my life and how, for me, identify my growth points. And often, growth points centers around fear points. So at least for me, concretely, anytime I fear, fear emerges or I'm feeling hesitant because I'm very secure with my attachment style. So I'm very upfront. Uh, I always like to tune in, like the attunement, saying that, hmm, what's coming up for me at this moment? And I tend to lean towards a fear side because I believe that mm. as Eleanor Roosevelt beautifully said one time, who knows if she said it, but allegedly she said, according to internet, she said that everything you desire is on the other side of fear. And I think being fearless is not absence of fear, but despite and in spite of fear, that's what courageous is. Right, right. So let's uh, actually talk about a creative journey after some certain detours. How do you find the moments of emotional connections and stories? I've taught filmmaking for so long that I can just hear it now. Like, oh, this is the moment. This is that thing that reached out and just squeezed my heart. And that that's what we care about. We don't care if the plot is perfect. We don't care even if the dialogue is sometimes inauthentic. What we care about is how a story, and particularly film, 
made us feel. Mm. Some of my favorite films were very, very flawed, but I will never forget how I felt, how I connected with a character. Their human struggle became mine for those two hours that I was watching, and I will never let it go. And that is the magic. That is just what you have to focus on. You do have to learn all these other skills. You do have to learn where to place the camera. You do have to learn the best types of shots. You do have to have a good microphone so people can hear what you're saying. Lighting, all of that stuff is important. But if you can create those magic moments where your audience is going to feel it in their body, what that character is going through, you have gold. It doesn't, the rest of it, there can be flaws all over the place. It doesn't matter because what we're looking for when we engage with story is connection. We want to see our human experience reflected back to ourselves. A brief example, I just saw All Quiet on the Western Front. I've never been in trench warfare, but it is a heartbreaking film that you feel every second of the way. It's exhausting Mm. because it is so visceral. And by visceral, I don't mean gory, which it is gory, but so visceral in that you, the audience, are feeling it in your body. And that is the thing that I feel like, especially from teaching, it's such a great way to hone these skills that you just spot it. And then you can say that back to the person who's working on it. That is your magic moment. You know, and it should maybe come sooner because you want people sucked into that story. I think the prerequisites to connection is validation. Because Mm -hmm. you feel like your lived experiences, your air quotes, self-perceived unique way of thinking, way of life is validated in other stories, in the films, on the theaters, podcasts. And through that validations, you're reminded of the fact that no one lives on an island. Even if you live on an island, quite literally, there is a tribe, there is a village, there is a community. So yeah, that's what's coming to my mind. And this is a awesome conversation because I have some creative perspective on when I watch films without the professional hazard of hyper-analyzing and things like that, which you might fall under sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I was listening to a podcast, Conan O'Brien, these friends, he was talking with Penn, uh, the Joe from you, the all-time mm. mega hit success on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen you. Yes, of course I have. I think that's the only show that I know of in the last five years or 10 years that it gets better as the seasons go on. It's it's such Mm -hmm. a masterful. But Penn and Conan were talking about the reason why it's such a smashing hit is because Joe, this serial murderer who has sociopathic tendencies, yet have these empathetic remorseful self-dialogues with themselves which doesn't really check out clinically because i have forensic background so i know psychopathy and i know how actual psychopath operates so of course it's he's a more humanified character and penn attributes the relatability of joe from the show you is because almost everyone can relate with that guy aside from the atrocities of murdering 12 people exes and so on I share that because we all see a piece of us in him. That loneliness, Mm -hmm. that longing, the desire to find the one you, the real reality between temptations by other people, sexuality, attractions, intellectual capacity, capacity, and so on. And we won't do what he does until you have the antisocial tendencies clinically. Uh, But it's such a cool shift in I think cinema and films in the modern versus like the 80s and 70s where we are moving away from the arc of hero's journey the single unidimensional path yet it's complex it's multi-dimensional it's real it's relatable and I think that's a visceral connections I sense from what you just say, said but it is it's, it's really cool if you really get into the weeds of it I like that you said that moving away 
from the hero's journey because for so many teachers that I know, that is the blueprint. And there is still, you know, some value. There has to be a conflict to sort of create the plot and to create interest and engagement. But the hero's journey can be very (laughs) alienating to you as the real person because your life is never that single-minded, focused, I'm going to get this and then everything's going to be okay. You get to the end of the hero's journey and another journey starts. And so I also think that that's a huge, huge, huge plus for us in the rise of these very, very high-quality, serialized programs where this character and their life can take so many twists and turns. And by the end of the four seasons, it's so much more developed than what could have been done in a two-hour film. I think that that's a huge, huge, huge plus. And it's really part of the the wide success of people turning into these as opposed to going to see a two-hour film at the movie theater, which I love, by the way. And I'm very sad because I think it is going to die. But there is something to be said to getting to know people for seven seasons as opposed to two hours. And things are not tied up neatly in a bow, ever. And because I think all of us going down this thread where I think all of us have a certain perversive nature, we all do. We're humans, we're complex. And I think, man, I think that show you just encapsulates it so masterfully and I can't wait till part two drops in, I think two weeks or three weeks from today's recording date and what a show. But um, I do wanna make this more relevant back to you, Pam, as a cinematic director, a filmmaker, producer, director. Do you feel like you're often or almost always giving or even leaving a piece of you into the films that you make to convey this visceral connections that you aspire to create, speaking of you. That is really true. And I think that that's another thing that's really important that I always share with my students. In a certain way, you have to find the story that you can tell. Because when you hear that story, the way it comes translated out, it's still their story, but it is definitely a worldview that fits with yours. And all of the films that I've made, that is so, so true. And I will say that even though I primarily make documentary films, it's not wrong to have your story encapsulated in that story. There's such a thing called POV for a documentary film. And you can take any topic and you can turn it through your POV. We've seen this with you know, films about Hillary Clinton. Some paint her as a demon, other people paint her as this amazing leader. That's their POV that's coming through. And that's the same. But what I will add to that is that you really have to have integrity Mm. when you realize that you are sifting this story through your POV. Does your POV match the POV somewhat to the people who are sharing their story because that's a really precious and very vulnerable thing to do is to hand your story over to someone who's going to edit it, add it with different stories and create this final project. And if you don't have very, very ethical standards for yourself, you're really taking something that should be treated like this beautiful treasure and just you know, melting it down like beautiful gold jewelry into a gold bar just for the value for you. So it is true that you do tell your story in one way or another, but you really have to make sure that your story aligns with the story of the subjects in your film. We're on the same wavelength because I have a perfect segue question. Because of the rise of more explicitly materialistic, capitalistic container we're in, even way more so than before. I think the line between documentary and propaganda is blurring more so than ever. 
Cowspiracy is a film that talks about veganism, vegetarianism, give up meat. I was a pescatarian and a vegan and vegetarian for quite a few years until I moved to Los Angeles, Koreatown, when there's Korean barbecue every corner. So I, I cave in, but I tend to go back. I'm not a fan of Cowspiracy and other similarly typed documentaries, air quote, because there's a fundamental difference between giving a piece of yourself in the storytelling versus having your bias shine through and dictate the direction of the entire film. And I thought for the longest time until 10 years ago, maybe a decade or so, you can probably speak to this further, where documentary was one of the few undiluted and impartial form of storytelling documenting about a topic that people that's important like NPR but for a film mm -hmm. so to speak but now it's just another marketplace and vehicle for different corporate sponsors and their interest to hijack and influence through the sake of woke or progress uh, progressivism and I, I feel very very sad and iffy about that so how do you any thoughts any thoughts there I do have thoughts, and unfortunately, documentary has always, from the very, very beginning, had its place in creating demand and selling tickets. Mm -hmm. The very first, or the most famous first documentary was called Nanook of the North, and it went up and followed an Inuit man and his family and created this whole story. I, I use the word creative. Again, that's a Freudian slip of um, being honest. None of it was true. None of it was true. But it was very, very popular. And, you know, how do you, how do you parse this? Because even news programs, there's going to be bias. Every time you face the camera this way instead of that way, you've just, you've just made a choice. Every time you include this shot and not this shot, you've made a mm -hmm. choice. So the person creating it is always, always influencing the content. And it is something that, again, we should never think about overcoming. We should think about that we struggle with this every time we tell a story. Is the story that I'm telling ethical and accurate to the best of my ability? So that is something that you always have to grapple with when you're making something. Will the people who trusted me with their stories feel good when they finish watching this film? I think about that all the time if I'm making something. Will they feel good about how they were portrayed? One of the criteria I view a great conversation is if I have more questions and if it brings back deeply, deeply seated and buried memories. And what you just said reminds me of an interview the creator of Humans of New York shared seven, eight years ago. For anyone that doesn't know him, he is the, one of the first viral Facebook person with just this amazing ability to create instantaneous rapport with strangers on the streets of New York, people experiencing homelessness or business people or just randos, whatever, and creates this capturing this succinct, powerful story in one paragraph form. And in an interview, him with Tim Ferriss, the OG podcaster, he talked about he had to turn down multi, multi-million dollar offer for other corporate interests to monetize his the stories that he held or he upheld for the strangers and he said that he will never sell the ips or rights or even any room for any corporate interest to dilute hijacked or impact those people who trusted him with these stories and he really left millions and millions of dollars in the table and those are the people i aspire and i respect and what you said sort of touches about that where when you're in the moment especially as a creative as a filmmaker Big surprise, unless you're a really big studio backed, it's not a lucrative field and it's a lot of struggle. And I'm going to speak with a filmmaker from Sundance 
music festival, uh, not, not music, Sundance Film Festival in a few weeks from today. And he's the one who shared with me the reality of what actual Sundance Festival is. It's literally just a place、mm. for independent filmmakers to go gamble and get pitched and aggregate investment to make the film.、Um, it's hard to really safeguard that integrity. Because it is the path of the highest resistance in a capitalistic container we live in. That's really true, and the support for arts in general and documentary film in particular are shrinking all the time. It's it's a very very competitive place to try and make ethical work, but I know a lot of people who do it. You know. Which is what keeps me hopeful, but、um, certainly something more deserving of support. Which other in other countries, even less affluent than ours, they do. They're able to. They value the arts more. So it's really it's a reflection, as you said, of what our values are. Yeah. But speaking of, I guess stories and what really matters, like placing the dollar where it matters. Uh, Pam, what are some of the most powerful and even universal themes you have witnessed from hosting filmmakers, musicians, artists on your podcast, in addition to creating stories on others' behalf、uh, throughout your career? Wow, that is such a great question. There too. And I wish that they would fall neatly into <laughs> one, and maybe you can neaten them up. A huge one is grief. A way to share your grief with other people who are then going to kind of hold it with you in your art form. And then the other one is community. And I think the community—I think they both make such perfect sense. They've probably been themes forever, but right now, more than ever, they make so much sense considering what. We have gone through the last three years, but even since 2016, I would say that the country is experiencing, in one way or another, huge collective grief, and we don't really have the cultural ways of dealing with it. But it comes out through creative work, and then as a community, we feel very fractured and polarized. And there are people who. Are strengthening their own communities, and there are other people who are really grappling with the idea of how can we create more inclusive communities. Those are the two that, if I could really narrow down, that almost everyone I talk to, that is, plays some role in their work that they're doing, and it makes it just makes so much sense to me. That does make perfect sense because there wouldn't be grief without the community first and foremost. Hmm. You know, how do we protect these rituals around grief, though, or strengthen them? That's a question I have. You know, what do you do now, especially during the pandemic? The public displays of grief, such as funerals and gatherings and things like that, I feel like we really entered into this space with a vacuum for how we express the rituals around grief. I think about and I share often with my clients clinically about the functionality and purpose of emotions. What I mean by that is I think we demonize negative emotions, even the dichotomy of positive、mm-hmm. and negative, to our brains, which is the optimal evolutionary machine over the last three million years. There is no good or bad or positive and negative in the paradigm. It's whatever helps you survive. Period. Therefore, emotions aren't inherently good or bad, or positive or negative. They just are, and they all serve a purpose: grief, sadness, anger, fear. They all serve a purpose. The difference is: do they benefit us, or do we like them, or not? That's the only difference. I think, as a society, speaking of mental health landscape, that's getting more and more diluted by capitalism and influence and marketplace. I think we need to talk about the importance that it's important for us to sit with grief and sit with the air quote negative emotions. I think it's 
it's an honorable thing to just honor and sit with the grief, because the only reason why we feel grief is because we cared about the community or the lost ones. It's a thing I tell my clients who are talking about grief and the loss and the grief counseling, where I ask them. It's a trick question. I said, "What do you think is in? What do you think it's an average or optimal time per literature to soak in grief and just really feel sad over the lost ones, boyfriends, father, grandfather?" And they always throw me a look. They're like six months, three months, a year. Gotcha. There is not a predetermined time. It just however long it takes. But if we don't spend time and dedicate time to sit with the grief, we're trying to suppress an emotion and memory about someone that we cherish. So I think it's a、mm. it's a difficult question. But before the ritual, I think we need to honor the emotion first and foremost because it serves a huge purpose. Right, but don't you think that when there were Stronger rituals in place around grieving that that served that purpose in a certain way, because I don't really know what to、mm. do now in terms of a ritual. He, you know, he and my mom didn't really have any friends or community where he lived when he died, and I do think that. There's something so powerful about gathering with a group of people and performing a ritual that is that is both、um, communal but also very spiritual. If you can hold on to that meaning behind the ritual, and I do feel also that that I'm going to take it back to art that that is in a certain way taking the place of some of these other rituals for people. Which I am good with that, because I still think every piece of art is sharing something essential from one person to another, and that whoever is going to engage with it needs that connection, which is what these rituals used to perform. So that's part of the reason why I love to talk to artists, because I feel like they are just doing the work of putting. Out there, what we need to hear in order to replace some of the rituals that we've lost. Here is my ultimate meta connections tying all these things together. Where I agree with you, I think grieving in resonance and in alignment and in a group. I think that makes it better, and I think that's the point of ritual. It's a collectivity, in this case, art. I think a quality that. This is my personal opinion, but I think a a cardinal or like a big hallmark of what makes an art is the progression. I think it's the progression that makes it an art, because when you first hop on a mic versus where you're in now, it's very different, and the progression is often nonlinear. And when we look back, we flinch. It's cringy. The first episode, mine was recorded in an iPhone to get through the point of no return and to bypass the paralysis by analysis phenomena. But then I have to remind myself: it's this palpable, invisible, identifiable progression that makes it an art form. Because if everything、mm-hmm. starts at a perfect peak point, the epitome, it's not an art. It's manufacturing. It's artificial. Another、right. characteristic that just hit me now from what you just said, Pam, is the universality that makes it an art. Is does it resonate on a deeper level universally? And of course, we talked about that in the guest intro in the beginning. But I think it's the progression and the universality makes it an art form. And tie that into grieving process or the rituals we're talking about. Is I think by witnessing and acknowledging our own progression. With how we sell with their emotions, or how we uphold that memory, the photographs, and whether that progression is marginal, incremental, or a giant leap, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is just bearing witness to the progression makes it ritualistic or makes it healing.、Um, I share that also、mm-hmm. because my grandma, she's in '94, and、um, me and my fiance were planning to visit her in Korea, probably for one last time. Um, she's、mm-hmm. already had multiple heart attacks. She f- survived the pandemic, 
and she's definitely near the transitional period of her life. And I'm also saying that in part for myself because there is an idea of anticipatory grief. And that's what that is. It's anticipating the sadness that's to come. And I'm also giving myself own grace to just witness and remember the progression. And I think that's what makes in an art form, ritual, universality, connections, and everything in between. It's all just expressions, you know, metaphoric expressions of the human journey, really. Which is why it's so dangerous to move away from the quote-unquote negative emotions because otherwise you're denying yourself your human journey. I like that. Yeah, art imitates life and life imitates art. I think it's, it's a exactly. bi-directional process. I want to conclude all this. And here is the art of podcasting, a full circle harmonious moment of what do you think, Pam, based on your expertise and your deep passion for storytelling and belonging what are some of the criteria or qualifiers that truly allow people to feel belonged and connect with one another i always say the first thing is curiosity you have to imagine yourself being someone else besides who you are what would it be like to be this person who Either you don't understand or you're judging them. And the second thing is to really develop empathy. And you have to start with yourself. If you are constantly down on yourself and telling yourself a negative story, which I tend to do, you're going to have a really hard time telling a more empathetic story to someone else, for someone else. You start with yourself and then you expand your circle. I don't think it's possible for people who don't love themselves to be loved. If you don't know how to love yourself, you can love others based on different genetic markers, different thresholds for emotions and empathy. I have seen people who are incapable of loving themselves and how to relate with their inner self to be very loving. It's possible, but they will never truly be loved because all relationships, in my opinion, is a projections about your relationship with yourself and then the primary mm -hmm. caregiver and then the romantic and then the friendships and companionships. But we have to first and foremost love us for who we are and then do everything else in between. Because if all of us, eight billions of us can do that, the world would be a lot better place collectively. But that is a huge thing because high achievers often have the loudest inner critic voice. And uh, we don't need to silence it. Once again, our brain is very optimal. It does things for a reason. But at least understand why the inner critic voice is there in the first place. And what is it telling you? Is it external? Was it instilled? Or is it you? Could be all of the above and then talk about everything else. But that's what mental health to me is. Well, and I would say that for me, that's what storytelling is. You often start down a path telling a certain story and you get to a point where you realize that that story is not serving you anymore. And you have to go back and find the new story that is going to serve you. And it's true for ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves, and it's true for the stories we try and tell to others and about others. What is the story that actually is the one that's gonna serve you right now? We are the authors of our stories and we are the filmmakers of the films we, we get to live. So once again, beautiful way to make all this cohesive, harmonic, uh, full loop. Uh, but speaking of stories and films, uh, Pam, this is my red carpet moment. Where can people connect with you further if they feel inspired to discover more about who you are and what you represent? Right. Well, um, there are two main places. The first one is the website for my podcast. It's arthealsallwombspodcast.com. My podcast is everywhere that you could possibly listen to a podcast. It's there. It's my 
baby right now, the one that is like being nurtured the most by me. So I hope that people will check it out. But another film that I really love that I would want to share as widely as possible is called Welcome to the Neighborhood. And that's at welcometotheneighborhoodfilm.com. And this is a lovely story about belonging, not belonging, belonging again. And yeah, it's, it's, that's my film that I feel the most connected to, really. Awesome, awesome. I really enjoyed uh, learning more about your stories and why you're so passionate about belonging and connections and emotionalities and even you being introspective and reflecting. Thank you so much for creating the space for this. It's a very special thing. It's very rare and very much appreciated. So thank you, Benoit. Thank you. Like I said, I'll bill you for the therapy session after <laughs> after the conversation <laughs> stops recording. But I'm just gathering material from the story I'm going to do about you. <laughs> All right. In that case, I won't bill that. 